Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the Integrative Medicine Programs here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Jed Fahey, a nutritional biochemist with an extensive background in plant and human nutrition and phytochemistry. Dr. Fahey is a leader in chemoprotection. Most of his work has focused on sulforaphane, a compound found most abundantly in cruciferous vegetables and particularly in sprouted broccoli seeds. Dr. Fahey was an associate professor at Johns Hopkins Medical School, where he directed the Coleman Chemoprotection Center. He's now on the adjunct faculty there. Dr. Fahey has faculty appointments in three departments at Hopkins in the schools of medicine and public health. He retired, that's in quotation marks, in mid-2020 to focus his attention entirely on outreach and educational efforts, which includes podcasts, writing, and lecturing widely. So I'm so glad to have you here. Welcome very much to GW Integrative Medicine, Jed. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I look forward to our chat. I know it will be a good one. And uh, for our listeners, this is someone who uh, was a mentor of mine and I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a long time, was just waiting for the right moment. And here it is. This is the moment. (laughs) So now that I've really talked you up, you better deliver. (laughs) You're you're too kind. Thank you. Absolutely. So just as a a primer, um, one of the things that we know that is involved in your work is advanced glycation end products or AGEs. Um, If you just give us a primer on AGEs for a discussion. Sure. And, and, you know, AGEs are not something that I spent most of my career studying, but had my eye on them for many years, uh, 15 years, probably. Um, AGEs, which is, let's use the shorthand, advanced glycation end products, are harmful oxidation products that play a significant role in many chronic diseases. They're they're formed in our bodies when sugars combine, when sugar combines with fat, protein, and even um, uh, DNA, RNA, in a process known as glycation. Um, And so they're formed endogenously endogenously in the body, but they're also in the foods that we eat. So we consume them. And obviously this is a place uh, at which we can control um, our consumption of them. Methods of cooking and preparing foods alter their uh, AGE content. And most critically, in my opinion, uh, in my humble opinion, um, uh, most uh, or the, the highly processed foods, certainly ultra processed foods by the NOVA scheme, Um, as well as foods that are cooked at high temperatures by grilling them, broiling them, roasting, and frying, have dramatically increased levels of AGE formation. These are, uh, if I can ramble on another uh, second or so, these are all, by and large, they're the things that are formed in the Maillard reaction, which any chef or cook and most nutritionists know about. This is the browning, not caramelization, but the browning that occurs when you mix proteins um, and sugars together and heat them. And that's exactly what's going on in when we increase AGE contents in foods. Um, so our bodies can only eliminate part of the AGEs that we get, and they do accumulate in our tissues over time, and they cause oxidative stress and cause inflammation. And the research, which is ballooning 
um, suggests that high AGE levels are linked to development of a huge variety of chronic illnesses, including heart disease, kidney failure, diabetes, Alzheimer's, and premature aging, which I think now has a, uh, I don't know if it has a medical code, but uh, many people regard aging as a, a disease which we can intervene in. Um, Low AGE levels have been linked with uh, accelerated wound he healing, uh, reduced inflammation and oxidative stress, improved insulin sensitivity, and even longer lifespan. So it's important to monitor them in, uh, as, as part of the overall markers of, of, uh, of health. Um, and it's also, uh, I, I mean, this... <laughs> We can talk, and I'll take a breath and let you ask another question, but we can and should talk about how many are in certain specific foods and, and how this is really reflected in the, the sort of gross overabundance of ultra-processed foods. Um, so just tell me if you'd like me to launch into that. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's something that I think of when I think of AGEs as ultra processed foods. But I don't know that the average well, the average person doesn't know what AGEs are. But even when we talk about this, a lot of times we're really talking about foods that are made at high temperatures, like grilling or 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 the char. But in ultra processed foods, that may not be what's occurring there. But yet there are AGEs. Yes. Yes, indeed. So um, it, one of the things that uh, I didn't mention because it's not a, an, an RDI, it's not a rule, it's not something that the um, diet, dietetics and nutrition establishment has really uh, come out with strong opinions on, not that I care, of course, but... Um, <laughs> You know, what is a proper level? If we're going to talk about numbers, what is a, an appropriate level or a healthy level? And a lot of the initial studies say that something between 15,000 and 20,000 AGEs per day is probably a healthy limit. Um, it, because as I say, uh, the, you, we eliminate some, the body detoxifies some. So there's no dietary requirement, but we do know, one thing we know without question is that less is definitely better. So if you contrast, for example, this is an example that uh, we've posted on a website I want to tell you about, but if you, can, if you contrast fast food, American fast food, and this is a McDonald's Big Mac, a large fries, and a Diet Coke, um, that one parcel has 22,000 AGEs. If you look at a, a typical Mediterranean meal, broiled tuna, feta, salad, and red wine, it's about 11,000. If you look at a somewhat nasty, in my opinion, kid's meal of cheese doodles and um, a PB&J <laughs> sandwich and apple juice, it's about 6,000. And if you look at a very vegetarian meal, plant-based meal, with bo a Boca soy burger, grilled veggies, and black coffee, it's 600 AGEs. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a huge variation in meals, and it very much points to a plant-based uh, plant diet and to not, you know, to raw or fresh foods, to boiling and steaming, and sort of points away from frying and roasting and broiling. Um, I mentioned a website. I'm, I'm a, a part of a, a foundation that is, that is aimed at 
who, whose aim is to educate people and develop apps and, and post data on AGEs. It's called the Anti-AGE Foundation. The website's anti-ages.org. Um, I'd encourage your listeners to, to take a look at it. It's, um, I think hopefully will be helpful over time. Great. Thank you. We will definitely make sure that that link is included in the notes for this podcast. Good. So, Dr. Fahey, what is chemo protection and how does it relate to health span? So, chemo protection is a term we used a lot in uh, uh, a couple of decades ago, and, and we, in fact, named the center that I ran at the end of my career at Hopkins, the Coleman Chemo Protection Center. My um, mentor, uh, who is just deceased three years ago, exactly, actually, uh, Paul Talley, um I'm not sure that he coined the term chemo protection, but our concept back then was that it is um, approaches, either dietary or chemical, i.e. drugs, um, that will protect a body, a person, against cancers. And we were focused, um, 25 years ago, we were focused almost exclusively on cancers. And uh, this was when the sulforaphane phytochemical that I've spent a lot of time now working on was rediscovered uh, in 1992, that was. And the thought then was that it was going to be a particularly effective phytochemical, a chemical from plants, um, against um, cancers. And it is, and it was, and it still is. But over, over time, we've come to see that sulforaphane as an example, but many, many other phytochemicals are also critically important in defending, in, in preventing, and perhaps defending against uh, established um, variety of chronic conditions. So not just cancer, but cardiovascular disease, um, uh, you know, uh, macular degeneration, a variety of uh, nervous system uh, conditions, including uh, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and, aut and um, autism. So, the, I mean, the list goes on and on, and I can go through that list with you. But lately, the past decade or, or so, I've taken to using the term health span. And in fact, there was some resistance to it from those, those sort of established people in chemo protection for a while. But it's become a very widely accepted term now. And health span is essentially if you view your if you view a very simple graph of quality of life on the y-axis versus time in years on the x-axis. And think about it. You're born, if you make it through birth in the first five years, depending on, especially on where you live in the world, um, you are pretty good to go. Quality of life is probably as good as it gets. And then in this country, certainly, as people get into their middle age and certainly into their elder years, they're hit by one, two, three, four, five even concurrent chronic conditions. And so quality of life over time degrades um, in the vast, unfortunately, the vast majority of Americans, various countries, um, until one day you, uh, you clock out. And I'm being deliberately a little bit crass, but um, I want to point out that health span 
although it's it's pegged to lifespan, doesn't really have anything to do with lifespan. It's um, because we're not talking about extending lifespan. We're talking about extending that high quality of life curve, squaring off the quality of life curve, so to speak, so that one day your genetically predetermined uh, uh, endpoint, you just don't wake up. But boy, it's been a great ride until then. And 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 that's. I mean, I mean, I can probably give you a more. I can give you a more technical description of healthspan, but that's it. I mean, it's enhanced quality of life, functioning, near full functioning, um, uh, until until the end of life, as opposed to this gradual and highly predictable decline, um, which we which we see in so many people now. I have to say, I literally got chills thinking about that. Like that's, that is the ultimate for me is to be completely healthy, be functional, be happy. And then one day just not wake up, as you said. And if we could have everyone get closer to that, I think that we would have a much healthier, happier society. It, uh, Lee, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and this is why I'm, I'm, I won't say I've become passionate about phytochemicals. I, I've always been passionate about them, but, but they play such a huge role in in enhancing that health span. And, and you know, back to the word lifespan, not necessarily lifespan. There are people who are working on senolytics and and prolonging lifespan, and uh, you know, I applaud them. And I, but that's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about making the time you have on this planet way better. Um, and so f- the consumption of fat, carbohydrate, um, protein and fiber, you know, you've, I, I know we all know, we've heard so much about, but it's that those added phytochemicals, which actually have a synonym that I'm starting to prefer to use nowadays also, and that's phytonutrient. I used to object to that because they're not nutrients in the classic sense of the word. But so many in the lay public sort of, they get, I don't know, they get creeped or they get, they bristle or they don't like to hear the word chemicals when we're talking about their food. So whatever. I mean, I'm happy to call them phytonutrients, (laughs) but if it makes people feel better, but essentially these are low molecular weight compounds that are present in very small amounts in plants. Um, and you know, less than a percent, far less than a percent um, uh, by by weight or by volume, and they're what give plants their color, their flavor, their smell, um, and they do all sorts of things to protect the plants, which are absolutely, after all, rooted in the ground and can't flee uh, from pathogens. Um, but they protect the plant, and our bodies are very capable of repurposing those compounds to protect ourselves. Some compounds in plants, of course, are toxins. We shouldn't eat them. But um, uh, yeah, let me stop there and take a breath again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm I'm glad you brought that up as well, because there, as you've probably heard, there's a a tribe of people who um, are quite appalled that experts would suggest that people should eat plants. precisely for some of these phytochemicals, um, saying that, you know, they aren't uh, designed to be helpful for us. They're designed to ward off pests. They're essentially like eating pesticides. Uh, What would you say to that group? 
I I'd, I'd rather not engage in that argument, but but since you since you pushed me, I will. I mean, I I think there's an, there's abundant evidence that that human human beings, um, at least over uh, the past, uh, maybe not from time zero, from the time we we diverged as a species, but that, that human be- beings have evolved not as carnivores, certainly not as solely carnivores. Um, we've evolved as omnivores, um, and you know I, I'm not averse to eating. Um, well, I, I, I should say, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, well, Dr. Fahey, what's your what's your routine? What do you do? Well, I'm not quite a vegetarian because I I do eat um, bivalves. I love seafood, and and you know, I love oysters and mussels and scallops. Well, living in Baltimore all those years, we'll do that to you. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you could argue that they're not sentient beings. And if you are really a a vegan, if you're a vegan, you know, maybe these should also be acceptable. But um, I don't want to get into the argument of veganism versus vegetarianism versus versus full-on meat meat diets. But um, I, I think the way I personally have have turned and twisted over the years is that in addition to plant-based diets or plant-forward diets or exclusively plant diets being far more healthy from the perspective of things like AGEs, things like phytochemicals, things like fat, things like satiety, um, there is this issue of uh, the way that animals are are cultivated, if you will, in, in the world. Um, the amount of land that is taken up to to pasture animals and to feed them, as opposed to directly feeding us. There's a map. I'll have to find a link and send it to you. It, it would be really interesting to link this to your show notes. So there's a map showing land use, um, air, uh, different ways in which lands land is used in the United States, and these it's like a jigsaw puzzle superimposed on a map of the USA, and grazing animals and feed for animals is by far the biggest chunk of our land use in the US. Then then so that's not sustainable worldwide forever. Um you could certainly argue that the harvest of wild fish from the ocean isn't sustainable forever and we've seen many species decline and tank. Most important to me is and and again i'm not a i'm not a member of uh, peta um but i do regard the way that animals are treated in in caged um crowded conditions cafos they're called um as inhumane and um even if i didn't regard them as inhumane and didn't give a damn about them um they're breeding grounds for foodborne illnesses they're breeding grounds for antibiotic resistance um, and they're they're unsafe and unhealthy for the workers by and large that that are working in there at very low wages. So, you know, I choose to to vote with my wallet, I suppose, my pocketbook, uh, and and that is to stay away from uh, beef, chicken, pork, uh, certainly something like veal, um, bacon. Um, and on and on. And, uh, but yes, I do eat some seafood and, you know, 
now I live on the coast of Maine, so I can't mm. avoid it. <laughs> so yes, it's. I wouldn't avoid it. It's a rule. Yeah. In New England, it's a rule. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So when you talk about chemo protection, a lot of times what you're talking about is cruciferous vegetables. Can you let us know what are cruciferous vegetables and what role do they play in chemo protection? Sure. Um, what they are is many of the of the vegetables that you see on the shelf in the grocery store. Um, they are broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, um, bok choy, Chinese cabbage, radish, arugula, kohlrabi, rutabaga. Um, now, when and, you say Chinese cabbage, is that what we sometimes call Napa cabbage? Yes, it here is. Here in the U.S.? Okay. Well, there, there, it turns out that there are actually a whole host of closely related, uh, I guess they're cultivars or subspecies. Um, yeah, but Chinese cabbage, uh, Napa, Napa, it's called bok choy, it's called... Um, yeah, there, there, there are a lot of variations found um, very popular in Asian cuisine, um, and they're all in the cruciferous vegetable family. How about then, China, course, Chinese, what they call Chinese broccoli? Um, Chinese broccoli is a little bit different, actually, um, but it's also in that family, yeah. Um, what's not in that family is lettuce, potatoes, beets, um, uh, and, you know, a, a lot of vegetables, obviously. Um, I didn't mention turnips. They're also in the family, the cruciferous family. Anyway, the, why do we? Why did Lee ask me that question? I guess it's a good way. To, <laughs> uh, so I, she, I know that she asked me that question because we've studied those vegetables, cruciferous vegetables, also called the brassica vegetables, for you know a quarter of a century now uh, or more, and and. The reason we have is because, first of all, they, in their entirety, were found by some early epidemiologic studies. Uh, nutritional epidemiologists, you know, look at uh, dietary records and food frequency questionnaires and, and food recalls. They find out what people have been eating, and then they correlate that with their disease status uh, or health status in various ways. And some of those early studies in the actually in the late 70s, 1970s, that is, um, identified diets rich in cruciferous vegetables or people that, I, I guess the way to put it is people that ate two or more servings of crucifers, cruciferous vegetables a day, as having um, a, half, a halved risk of colorectal cancer. And and so that was the and this the or this was important uh, at the time. It was viewed as uh, uh, perhaps not right, uh, and then um, people started to do more such studies and found out that wow, yeah, it probably is. And then there was a there was a meta analysis done of I think eleven similar studies a number of years later that that confirmed that. So. Having your risk of colorectal cancer by eating more cruciferous vegetables obviously isn't that difficult um, if you are so motivated. So in 1990, in the, in the very early 90s, Paul Talley, who I mentioned, my, my now deceased mentor and, and sort of a, a uh, grandfather of chemoprotection, 
started looking with his group at a, a number of cruciferous vegetables. They had an assay for uh, cytoprotection. They had an assay to, that enabled them to look at how uh, these compounds acted in a test tube or a Petri plate. Um, and in fact, they found that many cruciferous vegetable extracts were highly protective against oxidative stress. And um, uh, so they were cytoprotective. They then discovered, actually rediscovered because it had been identified, but a, a molecule called sulforaphane, which is present in broccoli, almost exclusively in broccoli, I should say. And it has become widely accepted in the lay press that all cruciferous vegetables have sulforaphane in them. They do not. And I want to make that point very clearly. If I could underline what I say, I'm underlining it now. Um, so they brought me on, Paul hired me in 1993 to try to find broccoli with more sulforaphane in it, essentially, because I my previous previous part of 15 years of my career were as a botanist. Um, so what I found then was that, in, in fact, broccoli sprouts had much higher levels of, it's, it's actually the precursor of sulforaphane called glucoraphanin. Sorry for all the long chemical terms. But the sprouts had far more of it. In fact, the seeds and then the sprouts have far more of it than the mature broccoli plant. And so we, the Coleman Chemo Protection Center and my group, spent most of the next couple of decades really focused on broccoli sprouts and sulforaphane and the whole the reaction that produces it once you chew broccoli, raw broccoli, or once it gets in your gut and your microbiome goes to work. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, there there is a rangeland weed out in California, out in the desert in the West um, that has a fair amount of glucoraphanin in it. It is not edible. Um, and there are, there's a tiny bit in some arugulas and some uh, kales. But again, by and large, it's only in broccoli. And so sulforaphane is, was, and still is the most potent naturally occurring phytonutrient slash phytochemical um, from the perspective of protection of cells, cytoprotection, inducing the body, the human body's own uh, metabolism to up its antioxidant game and to increase its anti-inflammatory game. Sulforaphane is also anti selectively antibacterial. I've done a fair amount of work on that with Helicobacter pylori. Um, it is antiviral. Um, and there's exciting work on that and, and um, SARS-CoV-2 um, and, and other coronaviruses and um, uh, a variety, actually a number of viruses. This work goes back a few years. And, and of course, um, there are people looking at it now with SARS-CoV-2. Um, so it's got a, it's got a really a plethora of uh, very interesting and disease preventive, uh, protective properties. And that's why I spent almost a quarter of a century uh, focused on it primarily. That's fascinating. 
Lee, remember when we did that conference and I think um, my ex exhibit table was set up next to the table for um, the folks from Hopkins who were talking about this and also had sample bottles of supplements? Oh, yes, yes. So we've kind of come full circle with this. And folks, that was just when the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health had just started. So this was probably 2018, I think. But anyway. Well, Jed could tell us some stories about how difficult it is to get that into a supplement. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, full disclosure, uh, I uh, actually Paul Talley and his son and I started a company to commercialize broccoli sprouts to promote broccoli sprouts back in 1997. And that company's in Baltimore and still exists and is doing well. Um, and we did start selling broccoli sprouts and we had co-packers around the country producing them. And there'd be, I don't know, you're, you're both too young to remember this, but um, there, there became a furor um, when uh, there were some incidences of foodborne illness associated with, I believe it was alfalfa sprouts. Um, and the FDA came out with a guidance suggesting that the very old, the very young, and the immune compromised mm. not eat sprouts because there could be E. coli, in, you know, there could, there could be foodborne pathogens in them. The, the track record of commercially produced sprouts of all sorts has honestly remained very good. And if you compare number of foodborne illnesses cases with those from eggs and beef and other things, you know, it's, it's minuscule. Of course, a lot less people eat sprouts. But um, so a lot of people shied away from sprouts. And in fact, the business seemed to be not a great business to us. And, and the CEO at the time, who's still the CEO, Tony Talley, pivoted the business away from selling sprouts to selling um, an ingredient, which is rich in glucoraphanin, um, to supplement companies. And so it's a business to business business now. And, you know, that's, um, as I say, they've been going at that for a long time now. And yeah, it's very difficult to, it's, to, to make these extracts, to certify them, to make sure they're, um, have the titer of the compound you say you're delivering. Um, and of course, then you sell them to a supplement company to incorporate into a tablet or a sachet or a pill. And as we all know, there are a lot of supplement companies that produce garbage. They're some of them are fly by night, but there also are a lot of good supplement companies that are reliable and that test the heck out of their products before they release them that monitor any possible safety events. So, um, yeah. So a long way of confirming what you said, Lee, I, I do know a bit about how difficult it is to get them into supplements. And, you know, if I can blather on for a minute, um, the, the sort of obvious question there is, well, should you be eating your cruciferous vegetables or you read you, my mind? You, well, <laughs> I've known you for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> Um, or should I be taking supplements? And, you know, it, it's it's like the question of at a certain age, should I be having a life insurance policy? Does it matter anymore? Um, 
I, I certainly advocate, strongly advocate eating a healthy diet, plant forward, rich in plants, rich in broccoli and cruciferous vegetables, and doing that for life, um, starting, you know, starting in early childhood. Um, and, 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 you know, of course, it's important to develop those tastes in infancy or maybe even in utero because um, you start eating those tasteless Cheerio type puffs um, as your first solid food. And, you know, what the <laughs> heck do you get as a taste sensation to train your palate <laughs> later in life? But but anyway, so the reason for eating the whole plants is, I think, clear to most nutritionists, and, and that's you are, first of all, you're getting a lot of fiber with whatever phytonutrients you're getting. Um, it it You reach satiety, you are satisfied and stop eating after a bit. When you eat empty calories or suck down as much sugar as you can, that's not what happens. So it's filling, it's sort of self-regulating. You get grossed out if you eat too much of any, you know, any vegetable and you stop. Um, however, you know, as and Lee, you, I think I've talked about this with you years ago. As someone who got my doctorate in, in the Bloomberg School of Public Health and was exposed to some of the real problems that the world and the country, this country, have um, in terms of f food and feeding and nutrition, uh, you know, I do realize that there are plenty of people that just won't eat, either don't like or just won't eat many vegetables or they'll only eat iceberg lettuce and, and potatoes. And, you know, is it as responsible public health people and as nutritionists, uh, you know, is it our job? Uh, is it... Is it right, I guess I should say, to tell them, ah, forget about you, you know, you're not going to mm. do it my way, take the highway, hope you hope you get all sorts of chronic diseases. Well, <laughs> that's not cool. And it's not right. And it's not ethical or moral. So what is so it but we do have some choices. And one choice is that yeah, people like that, um, probably can and should take uh, a number of supplements that help to um, bolster their immune system, um, enhance their oxidative capacity, especially if they're eating a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of bacon and uh, bacon and eggs and and Big Macs. the the other the the other thing I'd just like to mention, and I, I will come back to it as often as you would like, but um, you know, I think big food has a huge, huge, huge role that they could play if they wanted. They don't want to, by and large. And so I think they are hugely to blame because the ultra-processed food that has flooded our markets for the last 40, 50 years, um, more and more lately, um, and is now flooding developing country markets all over the world, is poison. It's analogous to cigarettes. Um, and it's killing people because it's so high in sugar, so ultra processed. There are a ton of harmful, documentably harmful compounds in those foods. Their phytochemical content is either nil, you know, it's, it's non-existent or it's far lower than whatever plants they say are in those foods. They're very high in AGEs because the, most of them have been 
pressure treated, uh, high pressure and temperature to extrude them into wonderful doodles and shapes and Cheerio type uh, designs. And so they, they, they bear a lot of responsibility for the epidemic of chronic disease and obesity that we're seeing in, in this country and around the world today. Yet they could, by, mod- by changing their game, um, they could be part of the solution because you're not going to stop people from eating convenient food. Um, and I know Coke, uh, Pepsi-Cola and McDonald's, they've all paid lip service to you know, improving their game. But I, uh, I better stop there. <laughs> You're getting so, me worked up, and I'm supposed to be retired. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we definitely need to do some stress management. That's yeah, important, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering if you have your eyes on anything in particular in terms of research. Like, what's exciting? What should we be looking out for right now? Um, you know, I think, I think an ability that I don't feel we had um, – 15, 20, 25 years ago when I, when I was first starting in this phytonutrient uh, pursuit. Uh, and that's the, our capacity to look at many things at once. Um, so, you know, back, back in the 90s, if we wanted to look at the effects of sulforaphane and something that we thought might be additive um, or, or, or synergistic, uh, combination, combina- combinatorial bioassays were extraordinarily burdensome, difficult to do, difficult to have good controls for. Um, nowadays, people can do that kind of thing in their sleep and not one, not two compounds, but m- multiple compounds together. And that ability is growing. And it's very important for phytochemical research, phytonutrient research. Um, w- you know, uh, I guess, I guess the other part of that equation is the outcomes, and that's uh, metabolomics. And so, also, twenty-five years ago, there was no metabolomics. Now it's all over. It's cheap, getting cheaper and cheaper by the day. And what that allows you to do is, is when you deliver in an experimental or a test system, or in in humans that are eating whatever they're eating, it allows you to measure changes or differences in the profiles of compounds that result from that phytochemical intervention or ingestion. Um, and, and this is important, you know, again, these things are linked integrally, intimately with, with our metabolism. So people are able to, to shed light on those linkages and those linkages and how they lead to various chronic diseases. This is being done now. Very imaginative people are doing this all over the world. Um, and I think that's going to be a good thing for chemo protection or health span research and for phytochemical research. I think, I think one of the other points that's, that's worth making is that, um, there are, there are, combinations of phytochemicals and drugs which um, are either positive or negative. Sulforaphane, for example, um, has some very uh, well-documented now synergies done by Hua Lu and Paul Talley, um, with whom I work, um, so that exemestane, an aromatase inhibitor, 
that's widely used in breast cancer treatment, not prevention, but treatment, um, and sulforaphane are, are synergistically active. Uh, or I put another way, sulforaphane synergizes exemestane. Um, Cisplatin is another drug in which interactions with sulforaphane have been examined. Um, but then, you know, then there's a the well-known grapefruit juice versus cytochrome P450 interaction. So these interactions are important, um, and we're becoming far more, far better able to study them now with with modern um, AI and and metabolomics, as I mentioned, and other technologies that just didn't exist 15 or 20 years ago. Um, what, the other, and Lee, I'm surprised you haven't asked about this thus far, but as you know, I'm not the expert on it. The other, the other area of ex, very exciting is uh, the gut microbiome and specifically how the gut microbiome is influenced by phytochemicals um, and, and how it influences metabolism and absorption uh, and disposition of phytochemicals. And, and again, you know, sort of carbon copy what I just said about 25 years ago versus now, there are a ton of people that are doing extraordinary things in the gut microbiome. And I believe you've had some on your show. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I know. agree. Uh, I, I like to think with the microbiome and with a lot of these is, is we're starting to really understand the mechanism that we saw in earlier studies where we could do mostly just observational, look at long-term outcomes, um, now we can figure out exactly why, and like you're pointing out with the the drug phytonutrient interaction, perhaps we can optimize that um, to be either more preventative or to actually be a treatment. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, wonderful. Definitely something to look forward to. Um, I'm also going to look forward to having you back on because I think we could talk way more about this, but also lots of other things. But that is all the time we have for today. So thank you so much for joining us, Jed. Thank you so much to both of you for having me. It was my pleasure. And I'm always happy to get up on my soapbox and talk about things <laughs> like this that I'm passionate about. <laughs> well, we learned a lot. Yes, well, we did. Great. Great. Thank you. Thank you. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frame. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.